Ruth, thank you very much. Shall we pray again as we look at, open up the words, the word of the Lord together? Father, we thank you for uh, the freedom in this country to open up your word in public like this. We thank you for the power of the word to reach our hearts, not just our minds, and to change our very lives. We pray that that may be uh, the work that you do in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, keep that reading open, uh, because we're going to look at that in a second. Uh, Recently, I met a young man who studied Chinese at university and spent some time living in China, uh, and he's now working for the UK government. And we spoke a bit about the way that the Chinese government have been, in recent years, increasingly hostile towards religion, and to some extent uh, has been since the, the revolution back in 1949, And yet how, in God's grace, the Christian church has continued to grow despite that hostility. In 1949, with communism taking over, the population of China was 500 million. Christians then numbered less than 3 million, and 90% of those were Catholic. In recent years, the spread of the word across China has meant that there are now estimated to be over 100 million Christians in China. And most of them are Protestant and not Catholic. Now, the attraction of Christianity in China is clearly, it's about the person and the work of Christ, um, reconciling people from all nations to himself. It's also, apparently, in China because of the international nature of the Christian faith. It's not a cultural faith, it's an international faith. And Christianity is indeed, isn't it, a global phenomenon. Uh, It has reached almost um, every nation and and almost every people group. There are some still unreached. And that's all the more remarkable that Christianity is global when you remember where it started, with with one Jewish leader, uh, and in a Jewish nation that were known for their separateness from other cultures and nations because of their devotion to God and his holiness. So you have to ask yourself, when did Christianity go from being part of this this Jewish, very small Jewish sect, as it were, to being this global faith? And you have to zone in, I think, if you answer that seriously, to the book of Acts, that's where the story starts, and especially, I think, to this chapter and what we call the conversion of a Roman centurion, Cornelius. Now, previously in Acts, the writer Luke has shown us Jesus promised this would happen. He said, back in chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's unfolding. We've seen that Philip took the gospel to Samaria We saw last week that Peter was being led by the Spirit to the fringes of uh, Jewish faith, towards Lydda and Joppa on the coast, the boundaries of the Gentile world. Here is this Jewish apostle, Peter. But today, this chapter, Cornelius, this is the true watershed moment Because he will become, we'll see next week, actually, the end of the story, he will become, effectively, the first truly Gentile convert. And that's how the gospel 
reached China, and even Norwich. So let's start at the beginning with Cornelius. I've got just uh, two... Oh, I'm sorry, I've left my clicker down here. I've got just two points this morning. Here's the first one. that Cornelius is an unlikely convert. An unlikely convert. Now, we learn from verse 1, if you're there now, that Cornelius is a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment, a Roman soldier, a captain. He's stationed, we learn, at the Roman army base at Caesarea. Uh, That was a, a very important Roman seaside military base, a port built by Herod the Great, and it housed the government of Judea. So on the surface, here is this this hard-bitten Roman soldier in a a profoundly Romanized city. Uh, On uh, on the edge, on the Gentile area, on the edge of Israel, a very unlikely convert, a very unlikely place for God to get the gospel through the door of the Gentile world. And yet, he is religious. Did you see that, verse 2? He's a God-fearer. He's a a Gentile, a non-Jew, who's attracted to the Jewish faith, its customs, without adopting all of its laws, a God-fearer. And he's not just a a token churchgoer, a nod-to-God-on-Sunday kind of person. He prays several times a day. He's generous in giving to God's people. Uh, That would have meant he's supporting the pensions for Jewish widows who had no means of support. He's funding Jewish orphanages. He's giving money to the local branch of the YMJA, the Young Men's Jewish Association. But the action actually starts, doesn't it, in verse 3. God's noticed this devout Gentile. An angel appears to him. And by the way, let's remember, an angel... Literally, it's a messenger from God. It's not one of those things you see on like a a Christmas card, a little cuddly white thing with wings. It's a burning, terrifying vision. And the messenger's uninvited arrival to speak to Cornelius reminds us every time that the news, the, the good news of Jesus spreads, the spread of the word, the story of Acts, every time that happens, It's not by human initiative, it's God stepping in. The messenger appears to Cornelius. God makes the entrance, we might say. And the question is, how will human beings respond to the divine entrance? And with Cornelius, divine entrance is met with human welcome. He asks, what is it, Lord? He's he's up the angel's service. The angel announces that his kindness and his prayers have pleased God. And by the way, the angel's point in in saying your your offerings have have ascended to God, it's not to tell Cornelius that his good works have saved him, but it is to tell him that God's recognized, here is someone who's ready to hear about Jesus in the Gentile world. So, the Lord gives a strange command to Cornelius, send to Joppa, which is 20 miles south down the coast, ask for a man called Peter, who, as we saw last week, is staying there at the house of Simon the Tanner. 
So Cornelius wonderfully obeys. He chooses, very wisely chooses three men that he knows will be sympathetic to this mission. They're spiritual men themselves. They won't see this as a wild goose chase rushing off to an unknown town, to an unknown person, but they'll be sympathetic. But did you notice that the angel doesn't say why he's to go and get Peter, just to go and get him? Not clear, is it, at this point? But we do find out later Cornelius has twigged why he needs to hear from Peter. Uh, He sends them off, and in verse 22, we discover, as the messengers say to Peter, that he wants from Peter, not a a kind of bishop's blessing, um, or a magic trick, or a counselor's wisdom, but he wants to hear what Peter has to say to him about Jesus. That's the word and the power of the word that, that Cornelius already knows. So, before we look in a second at Peter's central story, because he's actually the real center of this story, humanly, let's just think about one question. It may be that you here this morning, you are among us, and you're a little bit like Cornelius. You're on the edge of faith, perhaps. You're intrigued, you're drawn, you're you're attracted by what we see in the Christians in the church. You're looking in, as it were. And a little bit like Cornelius, is God speaking to you? Uh, You may not have seen an angel distinctly, like he did, but maybe you've got a Christian you know that's just drawn you that you see the life of God at work in. And the question is, are you listening like Cornelius was? When God says, well, go and get someone to help you, will you act on that? Will you maybe ask us for a copy of the gospel today to take home? We've got some free at the back there and read it. Or ask someone at the end of the service, how did you find your way into this? Because I'm looking. He's an unlikely convert, and maybe someone here, you feel the same. And keep coming back, because part two of Cornelius' story we'll hear next week. But here's the kind of big message this morning. It's about an unexpected command. Peter, in this story, this week and next week, is undergoing a massive change of his understanding of who God's people are, of how we're put right and become God's people. You could entitle this chapter not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. Okay, he's already a follower of Jesus, but his understanding needs turning around, and that conversion of Peter's mind is going to open the door to the conversion of many nations, of China, of Britain. Now, to understand that, let's start where Peter starts in his own thinking at the beginning of this story. The Jewish food laws. Now, if you were here at the seminar on Wednesday, we talked a bit about Leviticus and the food laws. It's in Leviticus 11. So again, if you're taking notes, I've put a couple of references on the screen there. That chapter of Leviticus teaches that the Jewish people were to distinguish between clean and unclean food. Certain kind of animals that could be eaten, others that must not be eaten. And also between food clean food that have been um, prepared in the right way, what's called kosher, pure, as opposed to not kosher, impure. Now, people have puzzled for centuries about why God gave the Jewish people these food laws. Some of them seem a little arbitrary to us today. 
No. Pork, no. Beef, yes. Um, crayfish, lobster, no. But salmon, fine. Seems arbitrary, doesn't it? Well, some have said, oh, it's for health reasons. Some of these foods are more healthy than others. But actually, most likely, it's the very simple reason. God is teaching his people a simple lesson about separateness, about being separate from a godless culture around us. And that meant that for the Jewish people, every trip to the supermarket, every takeaway you ordered, was surrounded by little decisions like, you know, can I eat this but not that? Is it clean and kosher or is it unclean and impure? Each minor decision reminded you of the major decision of your heart to put aside sin and to be devoted to God, to be clean and holy. Now, of course, that distinction, that separateness, meant in practice the Jewish people were also separate from everyone else because they couldn't eat with other people because their food wasn't clean, hadn't been prepared the right way. And if you want to read more about that stuff, I actually do get the book of the term because that has a really helpful chapter in there about all of this stuff about ritual and holiness and purity. Now, Jesus, in his teaching on this subject, brought the new covenant that uh, transforms that old, that old covenant and including our approach to food and what we can eat. That great separation is ended by Jesus. So in Mark chapter 7, again, it's on the screen there, 20 to 23, Jesus first criticized those who made outward regulations the measure of the inward heart. And then he said, nothing that goes into a person can make them unclean. Rather, it's what comes out of their heart that makes you unclean. You see, take a look at someone, take the person next to you now, have a look at them now. Now, you might be able to tell, uh, have they had a bath recently? But you can't see their heart, can you? And yet, Jesus is saying, it's the heart that controls who we are, that controls our direction away from God or towards God. So it makes no difference, Jesus is saying, whether you have always eaten pork or have never eaten pork, what matters is the cleanness of what's in your heart, not what's on your plate. So with that in mind, let's look at Peter. That's the mindset he would have had as a Jewish follower of Jesus in those early days. Now, he'd heard Jesus say that in Mark's Gospel. In fact, some people think he wrote, helped write Mark's Gospel a few years after the instance of Acts 10. But he's not there yet. Here, he's still assuming, isn't he? If you watch, look at the dream he has, that God wants his people to be separate, to be discriminating in what they eat and who they eat with. So verse 9, back in our story now. Peter goes up to pray, Jewish custom to pray at noon. Uh, maybe he's trying to escape the, the smell of the dead skins of Simon the Tanner's house by heading up to the roof. Maybe he's getting away from the uncleanness the contamination of the, of the dead animals around him. It's lunchtime. You know the feeling on a warm day like this, warm sunshine, sea breeze, 
watching the sails drifting by out to sea, he falls into a trance. But it's not just an after-dinner nap, is it? He sees a vision. In fact, he's hungry. He sees a vision of a sheet from heaven with food in it. And it's not just things that are clean, goat's cheese, fish. It's bacon rolls. It's prawn cocktail crisps. Now, we know Peter from the Gospels, don't we? Um, He's always the blunt one. So when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, and I've got to suffer and die, he's the one saying, no, 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 Lord, that, that, that can't happen. You're wrong. And Jesus has to rebuke him. So we're actually not surprised, are we, that when, when the Lord speaks to him and says to him in uh, verse 13, uh, Peter, go down, kill and eat. Kill and eat. From all of this clean and unclean food, Peter replies, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. It's classic Peter. And so the voice repeats the same words, the same vision, two more times against his threefold, Peter's threefold denial. He's three times restored in John chapter 20, and then here he is three times having to be shown what he's got to learn. Kill and eat, verse 15 and verse 16, Here's God's word. Do not consider anything unclean that God has declared clean. This is important, isn't it? He's got to get this. And poor Peter, he can't imagine that what was unclean before can be clean now. That the things that he discriminated against before because he thought God had told him to are now to be eaten. He can't see that God is preparing him to be converted in his mind not just thinking about food, but thinking about people. He's coming around eventually to the idea that people like Cornelius, hard-bitten, grubby, unclean Gentiles, like I was before Christ found me, that people like us can be converted and clean without being Jewish first. You can see that God is working in this story to make sure Peter gets this. Verse 9, coincidence, inverted commas. It was precisely as Cornelius' servants are reaching Joppa to look for Peter that he goes up on the roof to see this vision. Verse 17, it's exactly as he's wondering what this dream could be about. What did God mean, kill and eat? That the men are actually at his doorstep, knocking on the door, ringing the bell, calling him down. God is ahead of us. God is ahead of Peter and us, preparing our hearts to learn new lessons. If we've been Christians for years, we still need to learn. We still need our minds to be constantly converted. I know that's true of me. Every time I read the Bible, God opens my eyes to something new. Peter's, this is a big lesson. Verse 19, the Spirit gives a final nudge to Peter. Uh, Quite a clear one. Go downstairs, Peter. Get down there, answer the door, door, and don't hesitate to go with these Gentiles. Uh, The word hesitate, as I've put there, could be equally the word discriminate. Don't discriminate, not now between food, but between people. Because all are clean in God's eyes in Christ. So here's Peter, he's learning, isn't he, what the vision means. His own conversion is starting to happen now. And he begins to let go of his reluctance to mix with Gentiles. When the servants explained to him at the doorstep, uh, our Gentile master sent us, he had a vision of an angel telling him 
that he had to send us to come and get you, to go back to him so that he can hear from you, Peter, instead of saying, well, I can't mix it, I'm sorry, you're Gentile, I'd love to, but you're Gentiles, no way. He makes them guests in the home. We'll see next week, he goes with them. So can you see what God's doing here? He's, he's opening the crack of the door, isn't he, into the Gentile world now, to people like us. We're almost all here this morning, I expect, Gentiles, non-Jews. There would be no Christians in China today had God not done that with Cornelius the first convert. There'd be no Christians in Norwich today either. And so he went, and we'll see next week, he goes and he sits down, he, he eats at the home of a Gentile. Um, I expect he's probably still checking the food hygiene certificate of Cornelius's camp canteen cafe, but he's not checking the menu now, is he? And it's worth just saying here, we're not talking here about how, as Christians, we now embrace everything the world does. We're not to embrace sinful ways of behavior. This is about culture, about social barriers being abandoned because we're all made one in Christ through faith. Because he has made us clean by his death on the cross. Outward things are no longer needed as signs of that. So that's the unlikely command Peter gets, to go and not to discriminate anymore between people in Christ. Now Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 14 makes a similar point in the image of a barrier, a dividing wall. He says in Ephesians 2, it was on the cross that Christ abolished the law with its regulations and demolished the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He's talking about exactly what Peter is learning, Peter's conversion of mind here. That that wall was there to divide Jew and Gentile, to keep the Jewish people pure and holy, and yet now, says the Lord, in the new covenant of Christ, through his death on the cross, his blood makes us clean, and we are all one. Whoever we are, wherever we come from. So what does this mean for us today? Well, I think, first of all, I can see that if I'm someone this morning, and I've felt to myself recently that in some way I'm not good enough for God, I'm impure in my heart, I'm unclean, I've done things, I've messed up in a way that he can never really accept me like he does the others, unless I can put it all right myself and make amends and make atonement by the things I do, If you're feeling that this morning, hear the good news of what Peter's discovering. There is no discrimination before God now. There's no such thing as a person who's clean because of what they are and what they do, and a person who's not clean because of what they've done. We are made clean by Christ. We're all unclean without Christ. We're all brought near, as Paul says, through the blood of Christ as one people. Don't let your heart deceive you. Don't let the devil plague your conscience with this. Because this is gospel truth. There is no discrimination now in the gospel. Come to him to be washed and to be brought near with all of us as his people together. 
could be that some of us, not, not so much despair, but maybe some of us, we get a bit complacent, don't we, about this? If we've been Christian a while, maybe. Think of China today. It's, it's wonderful, in God's grace, there are now in China over 100 million Christians. Many more than the population of the UK are now Christian in China. It's wonderful, isn't it? But of course, there are in China another one and a half billion who have not yet heard about Christ or responded to him. And without Acts 10, we might say, well, that's fine, because um, Jesus is for us, he's not for them. But with Peter's discovery now, with that vision saying, don't discriminate between people. There's no them and us. Jesus is for us, but not for you. We can't say that, can we now? We need to pray for more mission in China, for the church in China to be bold in in its witness. We need to pray for people like Penny Bakewell in Ghana, sharing the gospel across cultures, like Peter was led to do by the Spirit in Acts 10. And in Norwich today, how many of us have someone at work who does not yet know of Jesus? Someone at your tennis club that maybe you know them a little bit, you've played a game of tennis with them. Are you sure that they're clean in Christ and they know his forgiveness and peace and they're heading to eternity in his presence? Or actually, could you not be sure about that? And they need to hear about him. They need you to pray for them. Let's not be complacent because the word is spreading, but billions still need to hear. They say, don't they, the the age of the missionary is dead, it's over now, we don't have missionaries anymore. Well, actually, if you read Acts 10, you kind of think, well, if anything, the age of the mission has only just begun. We're all the missionary. What about the prejudiced? Uh, And I'm, I'm being very careful here because I'm conscious that this is strong language, isn't it, to use. But this is what's going on in Acts 10. Peter's prejudice is being broken down by the Holy Spirit to reach to people he never thought God would want to reach. Very conscious the Bible's been used in the past to justify all kinds of prejudice. Uh, Apartheid in South Africa, partly, was given biblical support. You might want to say, well, um, through bad interpretation of the Bible, but people use the Bible. So I think maybe, what about a middle-class Christian? Maybe God would, what would he put in our sheet today if he gave us a vision? What would I see in that sheet as a middle class? Maybe I'd see a, a bag of chips wrapped in a tabloid newspaper. And God's saying to me, you need to let go of your prejudice against working class people. Or maybe a Mexican tortilla for the American fundamentalist who's keen on building walls to keep immigrants out. Maybe a glass of beer for the very respectable church member who's prejudiced against those that spend their Friday nights at the clubs in Norwich and could never imagine God would want to reach them with the love of Christ. Who might you or I regard as unwelcome at church or unwelcome at the table with me? Who instead could I be prompted by the Spirit to invite to lunch, to sit with at the picnic today? As we finish, some of us are old enough, aren't we, to remember the events of the 9th of November, 1989, as we watch on our TVs as enthusiastic Germans from both sides of the Berlin Wall 
took their sledgehammers and knocked it down. Two peoples, separated by culture, united at last. Christ has to dismantle something far, far bigger, the old covenant, which divided Jew and Gentile on the basis of food regulations, and instead he's given us the cross, the sign of the new covenant, that makes us clean, that unites us with him. See what he's done? He's replaced wonderfully social distinction with spiritual oneness and ritual discrimination with radical peace. May he change our hearts wherever we have prejudice. May he lead us to show obedience to that missionary command. And may he lead us to welcome all whom he welcomes in Christ. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you that you are the God who unites the unlike, who opens the door to the gospel, opens hearts to being made clean through the blood of Christ shed for us. May we not hold back from coming to you as you invite us, And may we have hearts and minds that are ready to be converted and changed that we might become messengers, missionaries carrying this open invitation to all to whom you send us. In Jesus' name, amen.